If you've got your Bibles open, we're going to open here to the, the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 1. We're just kind of making our way through these first couple of sections of verses. So again, just to put this in context, this is um, arguably Paul's first letter back as the gospel is going into an unreached areas. It's now going to the whole Greco-Roman Empire. And so we're watching as people who had never heard of Jesus, never heard of the gospel, are responding to it. And we're trying to learn the same thing. Lord, how can we be those people here in this city at this time, in this place? So let's stand and let's read God's word together. We're going to start here in uh, verse 5. And like I said, we'll go to verse 10 today. Let's do this. I'll read the odd and we can read the highlighted or even verses together. Starting in verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. All right, you guys can have a seat. So for the last couple of weeks, we've been picking out different aspects of this. Last week, we kind of walked through a number of these verses talking about Thanksgiving as the book of First Thessalonians actually highlights that. And so it's kind of worked in conjunction with the holiday there. But over this week and maybe even the next week, I want to focus in as we're looking at verse 9, this emphasis, this kind of radical work of the gospel as it talks about how they turned to God from idols, and, you know, that's a little foreign to us because, you know, we're not used to walking around the city and maybe seeing a temple or an idol to X, Y, Z God. But I think the reality is there are things currently in our culture that would kind of qualify, you know, as these things that maybe take the place of God, have that influence, that significance in our lives. And we don't always think of them that way. And I think as we kind of dig into God's word this morning, hopefully maybe he'll be revealing some of those things to you and maybe even equipping you and I as we go out into the city and we're trying to have this same kind of gospel impact. Um, so this picture goes back a little ways. Now my kids just duck their head. They're like, dad, this one was like three, four years ago. This was a, a family vacation that we did. We took a trip back east and um, then did a road trip all the way up, um, like went from D.C. up to New York, New Jersey. It was a blast. It was great. It was like the end of COVID when like there really wasn't a lot of people traveling out there. We're like, oh, this is good, you know? And uh, and so we, we just, we had this great time together as a family. Exhausting, you know, if you're doing like a road trip. And so when we finished in D.C., like I said, we decided we were going to hop in the car to New Jersey. And if you're traveling with my family, well, then every time there's a gas station, a bathroom stop, a sign that we're like, hey, we got to go take a picture. You know, it's like a five hour, you know, uh, trip turns into like an eight hour trip. Oh, my goodness. Um, another story. But so we take off in the morning and then we get to like New Jersey, New York area, you know, in the evening. And if you've ever like rented a car, you know, and you're like in New York and you've got to drop it off by a very specific amount of time. And uh, there's all these one way streets and no way streets and things where you're like, how did I get myself in this situation? Right. So so I, I make the executive decision. OK, I'm going to drop my family off. Right. This is like the place we were staying in kind of one of those Airbnbs and. So I'm like, all right, that's the New Jersey side. Just going to cross over, you know, into New York, drop off the car and I will be back. So I drop them all off. I'm watching the clock. No problem. Right. So, yeah. Right. So I head back in and man, I just every amount of traffic, every wrong way turn, anything that I could have done to go wrong literally went wrong. 
But finally, you know, it's now maybe like 10 o'clock at night. You know, I'm dropping off the car late. I'm like, but by the grace of God, you know, just let me turn it in. Don't charge me anymore. So I, I, I get to turn the car in. No big deal. And I recognize like there's like two bags that the family left in there. So I'm like, I've got my go bag. I've got like their backpack, another backpack. And I'm like, all right, I'm just going to get on a bus and get the tickets because we need them while we're traveling around the city. And uh, I'm going to head back home and we'll be good. We'll start, you know, this leg of the trip. So I get on the bus only to find out that I bought the wrong ticket. Anybody who's ever been, and we lived in Europe for 10 years. I get public transportation, right? So we go on there and I get the ticket. And I realize I have a ticket for just like, like New York, like not New Jersey. I can't cross over. So as I'm like getting on the, the bus and they cross over, they're like, okay, you need to get off the bus. I'm like, I'm still two miles away, you know, from like where we're staying in New Jersey. But I'm like, you know what? I got this. I'm just going to take my bags. We're not that far, right? And I'm just going to walk 10.30 at night, you know, through New Jersey to get to my Airbnb. I can do this. Not a good idea. But so I just start hoofing with our bags. I text the family and say, hey, guys, like I got off on the wrongs, but I'm just, I'm good. Just when I get home, because I don't have any keys, they're in the home. So I just, when I get there, unlock the door, come in. So I'm making my way through New Jersey at night. I'm hoofing it, doing all the random things where you're like looking around and, you know, like, man, this maybe wasn't a good idea. You know, like an hour and a half later, you know, I'm like, goodness gracious. So I get into, you know, where our Airbnb, where I showed you guys that picture, that whole building, et cetera. So I make it into the building. It's now, like I said, it's almost midnight. And I finally, I'm exhausted. I got these bags and I'm pounding on the door. And because uh, I'm thinking my, my family went to sleep. They locked me out and they went to sleep. They left me out here with the bags like, guys, I just did all this for you. What is going? So, so I'm standing there. I'm, I'm thinking, just wake up, right? So, okay, I'm knocking. I'm knocking and then start texting. Like, guys, I am out front. Get up. Come unlock the door, right? And so I finally get a text back. No problem. We'll unlock the door. Good. Could you unlock the door? We did unlock the door. Like, what? So as I'm like knocking again, you know, like now frustrated dad, almost midnight, right? And I can hear somebody else getting up. And I realize they're like, the door is open. We are standing there. Where are you? And I'm like, oh no. Right? Like the buildings are similar. I'm standing at what would be like the same number and same letter, just wrong building. And at midnight, I'm pounding on someone's door, telling them to open it up. Only to find out I am not where I thought I was. I was convinced I was at the right door. I'm like, guys, just get out of the bed and open the door. I was so frustrated. And yet I was what? I was wrong. You ever get to that moment where you're like, you're so convinced you're right. You're like, just what are you coming? And then only to find out like, oh, I had it like as wrong as I possibly could be. And, uh, and I laugh at that, you know, and it's funny, we use like the matrix analogy, you know, a lot of times today we talk about it, whether for some people it's politics, for some people it can be other things. You talk about that idea of like the red pill, you know, this idea of like being open, being aware, having this awareness that maybe, you know, like the world isn't how I think it is. And it's true when we begin to think of the gospel, when we begin to think about the, the truth of what God's word says, it's possible that you could just try to live life like in that whole ostrich theology, like head in the sand. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to be aware of it. But something that the gospel does is it really does wake us up. You know, that truth of who God is, who we are in the light of his love. And even kind of that idea of like, what am I supposed to do with my life? And I hope on Sunday mornings, I hope that as God is speaking to you guys both here and through your quiet time, that there is that moment as a Christian that maybe, you know, you find yourself, you think I got it all figured out. And then there's, there's moments where God can challenge you and go, okay, I want you to open your eyes. I want you to see this thing a little bit differently. And I think as we're getting into this idea of idols and kind of looking at how the gospel transforms us and challenges us and changes, sometimes we kind of need to be red-pilled by the word of God to wake up and say, am I seeing things through the lens of truth? Am I seeing things as they really are in the light of God's word? So as I mentioned, kind of our emphasis this week and maybe in, in getting into next week is really this idea of turning from idols, what? To God. 
And that's, I mean, that's a, a radical thing in and of itself. And anybody who's been kind of in that season of life, you know, who it's like, I was radically going this way. And I can go back, you know, at 18, 19 years old, when I was like in that season of just being as far from God as possible, and then having an encounter that radically, you know, changes the, the, the trajectory of your life. And a couple of weeks ago, as we were talking about how this even happens, like what was Paul's emphasis, you know, in getting them to turn from idols to God, like I'm, I'm turning from something to something else. Like there comes that truth and we saw him doing it in the synagogues and obviously he's doing that out in the marketplace, but he's communicating a message, a truth about who Jesus is. And at some point, if I'm going to turn away from idols and idolatry and other things that I'm, I'm holding on to, to Jesus, there comes a moment where it's like, I've got to make a decision. Jesus is greater than fill in the blank. And there's a lot of people in our world today, you know, who maybe haven't fully grasped that idea of how Jesus is greater than fill in the blank. So when we think about Jesus is greater than what or who, as we're getting into what Paul was doing in Thessalonica. So like I mentioned before, Thessalonica was a unique city right there on the, 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 the coast of Greece. It was a major capital city. It was uh, kind of a hub for trade. I mean, it would be like the LA, if you will. It'd be a cultural epicenter. It would be a trading epicenter. And so it had great favor, both with the empire in terms of Caesar, had great uh, favor in terms of like the way it could build its temples and have all these resources. So it was a place, you know, where um, your identity in terms of your community and your culture was really significant. And so as, as, I, as I walk you through for a moment, you just put your History Channel hat on, some of you guys are like, oh no. But I, I think it's helpful just as we kind of get in contrast thinking about the world today, I want to bring you into the Greco-Roman world for a moment, because maybe you guys haven't looked at it in terms of history, but as you think about what it would be like you know, if you were growing up in a, in a Roman culture, thinking about this idea of turning from idols, what, what was worship like in the typical Roman household? Well, I mean, if you were lucky enough to have a home, you know, here's, a, here's kind of an outline of a Roman home. And obviously the, the atrium was kind of the hub. You'd come into this, you know, big open area and that's where business and, and hospitality would take place. But often there in that atrium, that key place would be the larium. And the larium would be that, that kind of, cut out that, 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 that place that you and I would call maybe like an altar. This would be where the family gods, you know, and when we talk about idols, like those little things of significance would be worshiped and highlighted and emphasized. And, and in each home, you know, whether you had a big home or a small home, there would be this place of the larium. It, it was the sacred place of the home where prayers and offerings were made. So, you know, you've all got that like place in the home where all the pictures, you know, of the family go you know it used to be like what the hearth like over the fireplace that hub like this would be at the heart of the home one historian said in a home in which rituals were kept and the spirits were honored would thrive while those who neglected the spirits would suffer accordingly you know for a, a, a roman it would be better if you didn't head out to one of the holidays to sacrifice to zeus or jupiter than it would for you to miss a day of these daily rituals, these particular aspect of how their spiritual life was influenced on a day-to-day -day basis was greater than the idea of even the, the pantheon of gods. Because the closer these spirits and gods were to your home, the more of an impact they had on you. If you failed in one aspect, it'd be like, well, you're in for a bad day, you know, because you didn't X, Y, Z in terms of, you know, following these rituals. Couple of things that would, would just kind of fall into their day-to-day -day aspect. There was what was called the, the pains in the painetess. These were the spirits of the pantry in the kitchen. They must have been really busy like around Thanksgiving time, right? Like these are all the little Keebler elves that are, that are involved in the keeping the food from spoiling and, you know, keeping the abundance of the food. They thought that there was a particular aspect of spiritual involvement, you know, because again, we don't have all the refrigerators and stuff like that. So how do I account for food staying and not getting sick, etc.? And so in each meal, you know, you would bring out the little figurines, and as a, part of the, as a part of the meal, it said families would give thanks to them before eating and a portion of the meal would be set aside in their honor and then burned afterwards in the hearth fire as a ritual offering to them. 
You know, with each meal, there would have to be this recognition to these, you know, little gods that would be a part of bringing providence and taking care of the food. It's funny, we think about blessing our food, you know, but we obviously don't think about it in terms of little elves or something, you know, behind the scenes with our food. They also had what would be the lairs, thus what we called the larium. This would be probably the most significant in terms of individual connection, both the lairs and this idea of the parentes. The lairs were the spirits of one's familial dead, not the general dead. That's going to be a different emphasis I'll highlight in a second. And it required acknowledgement and honor daily. This goes back even into the Sumerian and Mesopotamian culture. We talk about this idea of the veneration of the dead. You know, where there's got to be some way when you think about them crossing over in the afterlife, like what, is, what are those people doing and how are they directly involved in my life? And for them, you know, your ancestors, the people that were part of your family, you know, this was a, this was a significant thing. The, the person who would get the inheritance, you know, the oldest, it was their job to make sure that they followed all of these rituals. Because if they didn't, if they stopped honoring your name, it's like as if you would cease to exist. And so that thought of like not following through with these rituals, well, that's when they start coming back and haunting you, you know? So it's like there was, I mean, even if you go back to Mesopotamian culture, think about Abraham, right? Growing up in Ur and the thought that, oh no, I don't have a what? I don't have an heir. I don't have someone that's going to be able to honor my name after the fact that I'm died. They had this belief, right? That, that someone had to kind of keep that fire lit, so to speak, keep your name alive. And so that was a big part of this idea of veneration. And we'll see the scripture even dealing with that, you know, in terms of how we see it throughout the Old Testament. But beyond this idea of the layers, this idea of your grandparents and your ancestors, those in your family line that died, that you would honor, you would have figurines and people that you would talk to. That's grandma, you know, that's crap. Like in terms of like, I am looking to them for wisdom, for support, for answers to questions. Like these are the people that have a direct impact, you know, in my life. And the idea of the parentes was similar, but different. This would be my living family members. So let's say you're traveling, you're in military service, or you're, you know, got to got, got head out to go do some trading, etc. Well, this idea, you know, of your wife and your kids, like, I'm going to bring them with me, and I can pray for them and, and support them as I have my little figurines. There was, um, how many guys saw the movie Gladiator? All right, it's just me, right? So this is my, so there's a scene in there that highlights this. Let me show you guys the scene, and we'll bring you back to what I'm talking about. Ancestors, I ask your guidance. Blessed Mother, come to me with the God's desire for my future. Blessed Father, watch over my wife and son with a ready sword. Whisper to them I live only to hold them again. Ancestors, I honor you. I will try to live with the dignity you have taught me. So you can see with his little figurines for him, it was like he was thinking about his family. He was thinking about his ancestors. Like, again, I think we as Christians, again, we have our, you know, the knowledge of the truth that comes through God's word and, and what Jesus has done for us. And we have this picture in our mind of worship, you know, but there's a whole nother way in which people who with very strong religious intensity have their beliefs and way that they think about how their life needs to operate. And this is one practical way for a Roman, like every aspect of their life. You know, my family is involved. I better honor them. Otherwise, they're going to come back and haunt me. And you can begin to look down the list. Because they had this idea of the general dead, the mains. They had these idea of the lemures, the wrathful dead. Like these are the ghosts that like somehow didn't get honored and worshipped and someone wasn't properly taken care of and they're coming back to haunt you. And then you have this idea of the genius, this idea of the, the spirit of manhood, the blessing that would be on the, the next generation, the inheritance, and we need you know their favor. And then you have the umbre, the ghosts. My point is begin to look at all of these different things and think about from a little kid all the way up to an adult, like your life has been immersed in this. Every facet of your life from getting up and having a meal, you know, to, you know, this idea that like, if I don't stop honoring and praying, like they're going to die and they're going to like haunt me and all that kind of stuff. Like every part of your life is engrossed in this. 
So now when we go back to what's happening as Paul is communicating the message of the gospel, what happens when one of these people gets saved? In a culture where this has been your reality from when you were a kid now to an adult, you've heard about Jesus. God in human flesh came down, walked amongst us, was the fulfillment of these prophecies. He died on a cross, rose again, and he's coming back. You're like, wow, this is awesome. And then you go back home, right? And then you wake up in the morning and you go to have a meal. Do you set the figurines back out? You know, do you keep like honoring the ancestors, you know, because what happens if I, you know, what happens if I stop doing that? Like, does, does believing in Jesus allow me to still keep all this other stuff going? And, you know, that was a big part of what you and I don't always think about when it comes to the early church. And so for us, and we need to be thinking about the same thing. Because I think for, for some, the idea was, do I just replace these things? Do I like Christianize it in a way where I just like, okay, I'm going to do some of these same things, but I'll just put some Christian terminology in it, which over in history, sometimes the church is done. We've just like, well, let's just, you know, we'll just add, you know, a little, little Jesus flavor on that. You know, we don't want to mess it up too much. For some, you know, this idea of like, hey, we just, if I just tell everybody stop, but I don't communicate the truth of the gospel. We can leave people in really some, some awkward places. And that's where discipleship really comes into play. How do we communicate the truth of the gospel in the midst of this culture of family idols? Now, one of the things that we understand about the gospel in the Bible, the Bible makes it really clear that part of the, the teaching and the preaching, the explaining of God's word, part of what we're doing on Sunday, um, Paul would say this to the Romans, he said in Romans chapter 12, verse two, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you will be able to test and approve what is God's will and his good and pleasing and perfect will. Part of the teaching, preaching, explaining, the more I am being exposed to the word of God, the more I see myself in the light of God's love, the more I see the world in the light of God's love, I begin to understand truth. It's gonna bring up questions. Well, what do I do about this? What about this thing? What about that thing? But here we begin to see as Paul, as he would write in many of his different letters, and if you go back and you begin to think about now, Romans, Colossians, Galatians, Corinthians, even Peter, right? The gospel is going out into a Gentile world that's never heard about this, and they're answering questions about these very things. How do we live out the gospel in a, in a culture filled with idols and idolatry and traditions and all the rest of this kind of stuff? And do we just leave it the same? And so you watch, as even Paul would tell in Ephesus, which had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the, 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 the whole um, worship of Artemis. And so it says, look, hey, you were once in darkness, but you are now uh, light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. Like we begin to see that Paul will make it very clear. Like, look, our mind is going to be get transformed by the word of God. And just as God has saved us from, he saved us for, there's going to be a change for us as a Christians. We don't just become Christians and then just still keep all of this baggage and stuff from the world. It's actually going to begin to have an effect on all of these other things. In fact, the way the Bible would describe it in terms of discipleship, Paul will say, look, there's things that you have to begin to put off and there's things that you begin to put on. This is what discipleship is all about. Let's stick with the Ephesians for a moment and see how Paul communicates that in terms of our life with the gospel. He says, so I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles. The word there just means ethnos. Anybody who, who, who wasn't there in Israel, these were the surrounding nations, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity. They are full of greed. And so we realize that, again, if I don't grow up with the gospel, if my heart is darkened to these things, the Bible says, you know, God has put eternity in our hearts. And you're noticing that, that the reality is people will try to take these things where they feel a longing, they feel a connection, they feel a desire to worship. But ultimately, if I can't satisfy that in the truth of God's word, I'm going to try to satisfy it with the what? With the flesh. Because I want that sense of connection, et cetera. And we realize, look, it says the flesh is a poor substitute for a soul searching for God. That is one place that I can begin to make a connection is I know that everybody is searching and longing. They just might be satisfying that in a very different way. Notice it says, however, it is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life 
to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I want you to notice that. Look at what I highlighted. There is a sense as believers, as we begin to grow in God's word and the knowledge of truth, that there are things that we need to begin to put what? Off. And there are things that we need to put on. And the reality is just like come Christmas day or whatever, I don't just put like the new clothes on over the old clothes. Like there is a process of like, what do I need to strip away? What thinking, what actions, what attitudes, what things did, you know, did I have as a part of my life pre-gospel that maybe I need to say like, am I still wearing that and trying to wear the truth of God's word? Let me give an example, right? Just in terms of our own culture. As we think about our own holidays, and this is just one example that you can look at that's kind of similar. You know, we think of like Dia de los Muertos, Dia de los Santos, like this idea of like All Saints Day. And this is just one thing in people's minds that you look back and you're like, man, that's kind of true. Like that Roman culture of, hey, I need to keep these people's memory alive. And, you know, we go light a candle and we say their name and we do these things and we need to honor them because if we stop doing it, you know, something's going to happen in terms of eternity. And I know people who feel very strongly about that. You know, like, man, I've got family that are like, we need to make it out, you know, of this particular spot. And I got to pray them into this spot. And where do these thoughts come from? Do those thoughts come from the word of God? Does the Bible say it's to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? Like for a believer, my last breath on earth is my first breath in heaven. Like, what does the Bible actually say about after I die? And there comes a point as Christians where we kind of have to kind of audit our life. And there may be traditions that you have, Thanksgiving, Christmas, right? These things can be valuable. Some of you guys are like, even Halloween, right? Like there are opportunities that I can go out and love on people and minister to them. However, if there is a necessity, in other words, I have to do this, like this is, this is a critical part. Like if I stop doing this, you know, it's going to have some impact on eternity. Well, hold on. Maybe I'm adding to holding on to something that's not actually the word of God. And this is one of those questions that we need to begin to think about in our own life. Are there any practices, traditions, superstitions that are active in my life that don't line up with the Bible? Like I said, if you were one of these Romans growing up in that household, you would have a very particular thought about, like I said, those figurines and about practical ways in which you needed to do certain things. Like, no, you need to say it this way and at that time and do this thing. And if we stop doing that, you can imagine how overwhelming it would be just like for the Jews who would become Christians. And there were things that they began to see in terms of changes in their, in their lives. Initially, they were like, no, we just need to make Christians to be more like Jews. And there was that argument at the beginning as the gospel was going out in the new church. And it's like, hold on, what do we keep? What do we stop? Where is that liberty? Where is that love? Now, as we begin to think about our lives, we recognize thinking of like this idea, like All Saints Day and the, the necessity that we have to try to like keep my family alive and some of these different things that might be rooted more in culture. The reality is I know right now, because I'm, I'm working with some, you know, that those people that you're missing, that you love, you know, you want to honor, you want to remember, you want to celebrate them. But the reality is our actions don't impact their what? Their eternity. You going and lighting a candle, the prayers that you pray, these kind of things, they're not going to change their circumstances. That's biblical truth. But the reality that I'm holding on to maybe certain ideas, practices, attitudes, I need to go back to the root of that. And I say, I miss this person. I love this person. I want to honor this person. But at the same time, holding on to some idea, you know, that maybe what I'm doing is somehow impacting what's happening over there can open up all kinds of doors to things where we can be taken advantage of or begin to get in to idolatry where I begin to hold something up greater or higher than the word of God. Now, let me break this back down to kind of where it just started as we kind of think into some practical things. Let me say this. What did you just notice as we looked at this first area of Roman life and idolatry, because there's three main areas where in Roman culture, the worship of the gods was preeminent. The first one, like we talked about today, was in the home. The second one was in the community. And the last one obviously has to do with Caesar in terms of the political aspect. But you notice the most significant, most predominant area is this idea that worship begins in the what? In the home. And this is where we start as believers. 
And I want to say an idea. Where does our idea of worship come from? As you're thinking about growing up, some of you have kids. Some of you have nieces and nephews and grandkids. But just as we're looking at like the enemy's idea to say, look, this is how we begin to shape and mold the hearts and minds. Let me ask you this question. How old were you? For those of you guys right now today who are saying, look, I believe I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. How old were you? when you accepted Jesus Christ as your savior. You know, as we go around the room, we could probably take a number of polls. Some of you guys, maybe it was as an adult. I know for me, I started out, you know, growing up in a Christian home, having that information, you know, planted, those seeds watered. And, and I began, I remember that as a kid, totally walked away from it as an adult, had a radical transformation after leaving my parents' house and all the rest of that kind of stuff. And I watched God radically bring me back as an adult. But it started as a kid. How many of you guys would say that you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior before the age of, say, 14? How many here would say it would be like after the age of 18? Okay. And so it's interesting when we begin to look at statistics, as we kind of look at kind of some of the things that, um, that we're observing, as we get feedback from people that are doing some of this stuff, how many of you guys have heard of the 414 window? It's been said with like Barna statistics and research statistics that 85% of the people who would initially begin to respond to the gospel are during the ages of 4 to 14. 4 to 14, 85% of the people who normally identify as Christians are saying that's where I began my relationship, my walk with the Lord. Now, what does that tell you? Well, number one, it should tell us, well, this is why there's such a battle for the hearts and minds of kids out there, right? There is an openness to that window spiritually, right? Where, where I'm willing to receive, I'm open to hearing. And I have to be really careful as a parent, as someone who's influencing in the lives of kids, like what it is that they see about God, about truth, about Christianity, about religion, et cetera. Like, right, like, like this is where that window is really open in terms of spiritual sensitivity, it gets a little more challenging in that four to 18 window, let alone that 18 and up window. Let me give you an example as we look at scripture. In the book of 2 Timothy, Paul is talking to actually one of the guys that's one of his travel companions right here as he's going into Thessalonica. And when we understand a little bit about Timothy's testimony, it says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul's writing back to Timothy, trying to encourage him. He says, look, I want to remind you of your sincere faith, which first lived what? in your grandmother Lois, and in your mother Eunice. And he said, I am persuaded, now lives in you also. As we think of the, the radical impact that Timothy would have in terms of traveling with Paul and you know, being involved in the spreading of the gospel, we notice kind of where faith started for him. It, Paul makes the, the highlight that it was both his mom and his grandma. That both of these women you know, who may have like been a part of this first generation of believers, you know, this idea of them planting the seed of the gospel, speaking into Timothy's life, praying, prophesying, God's got a plan for your life. Paul will later, hey, don't neglect the gift by the laying on of hands. These things that were spoken over you. But man, where did it start? Started with grandma and started with mom. And some of you guys in here are first generation believers there's maybe been a legacy, a history in your family where it's like, no, for generations, that was not our family. And for you, you're starting an entire different tra trajectory for your kids, for your grandkids, etc. When we look back in scripture and we think about the significance of this, especially moving in like out of that whole Egyptian culture, which why is always significant. When you look at even God's top 10, thou shalt have no other God's before me. We don't make any graven images. Like God's making it really clear about this distinction between himself and other, other gods, little g gods. And so from the very beginning, Joshua gives us this example, this observation, right? In a land that was filled with idolatry and the worship of other gods. He says, look, as he's closing out, as he's getting ready to pass on the baton of leadership, as for me and my house, how does it finish? That was way too quiet. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Like that's got to be more than just a verse on my refrigerator. That's got to be more than just a plaque that's up on my wall. What is that declaration mean? And why is it so important that we say it? 
Why is it so significant that there is no other rival throne? There is no other uh, supremacy of emphasis, things that are carrying superiority in our lives. We go back and we look at a similar story a little further down the line, Gideon, Judges chapter 6 and 7. After coming into the promised land, we see that there would constantly be this cycle, this sin struggle with idolatry. They would begin to add the worship of other gods. And so God would raise up a deliverer and we would find that they would do well for a while and then they would fall right back into that cycle. One thing that's interesting about Gideon's story as, uh, as, as we find God's call to this young man, Gideon, he's talking to him. He says, look in verse nine of chapter six, I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove you out before you. I gave you into the land. I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and he sat under the oak in Orphrah that belonged to Joash, the Abiezerite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. So Gideon's out one day doing the chores, actually kind of doing the, the, the work in terms of threshing the wheat. And there God's going to get his attention. The Midianites, another surrounding um, group that lived amongst the Israelites who worshiped false gods, they were actually oppressing the people. And so God comes to Gideon. And there as God would tap him on the shoulder, and it says, um, hey, behold, mighty man of valor. God's speaking to him. Gideon's like, me? He's like, yeah, you. He's like, no, but I'm the lowest in my family. My, my family's the lowest in the tribes of Israel. And God's like, hey, I'm going to deliver Israel through you. And so he's having this radical processing that God actually wants to use him to reach the nation of Israel. But then he goes in to give him some instructions. So there, there first comes this call. And then comes this very specific kind of next step after the call. Verse 25. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, and tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it and build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of its height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer a second bull as a burnt offering. And so Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. So I want you to notice number one, that this family living in Israel, that, that, that Gideon's family, his dad, his grandpa, etc., that whole group, the Abiezerites, had fallen into the worship of idolatry. And so they had two very specific altars set up. One to Baal, which again, Baal was the, the storm god. He was the one over all the crops. And so again, it's like, man, if we're going to get any kind of crops, if we're going to have some, we better have an altar to Baal. And Asherah was this worship in terms of fertility. And so there were all kinds of weird satanic aspects that would be involved in the Asherah pole. And God says, here's what I want you to do, Gideon. I want you to go into your, your family estate and I want you to tear down that pole and I want you to use it for firewood as you build an altar to the Lord. Tear down the altar of Baal and I want you to build up an altar to the Lord. Some of you guys, like Gideon, as you've experienced the call of God on your life, have also experienced this challenge where God looks at you and he says, hey, there are some things that have been built up in your family, in your culture, and I'm calling you to look at those idols and to those things that are built up and I want you to tear them down and I want you to build up an altar to the Lord. And it's scary. Why was he scared? Because he's like, man, the rest of my family is going to kill me. And that's actually what the initial response is. The people begin to like, hey, who is this? Who did that? What in the world? And then the light bulb goes off. And they're like, hey, if Baal really is powerful, then let Baal take care of him. What's interesting is the next um, paragraph later, as Gideon begins to lead out and God's calling him to, to put together an army, and he says, hey, I want you to blow the trumpet, that the first people to respond, it says, is the Abiezerites. You're like, who are the Abiezerites? Well, if you remember back from the beginning of the chapter, his dad was Joash of the tribe or the family of the Abiezerites. And so as overwhelming and challenging it was to tear down the altar and to go through that process, ultimately when the battle was ready to be fought and the trumpets blown, that it's ultimately the family that's the first to respond that roll out with Gideon as God uses those 300 to do this radical victory. And so don't underestimate if God's calling you to be the one that begins the process of tearing down the altars and building them up and you're scared and you're overwhelmed at your family, maybe God's using it in your life to ultimately be a wake-up call to your family. So when I begin to think of my home, when you begin to think of your life, when you begin to think about where God has placed you, you gotta begin to ask the question, is there anyone or anything taking a greater priority than Christ in my home? Because you're like, I don't got any idols in my home. You know, I don't got these little figurines that I'm praying to. I got you. 
But maybe there are other things that are a little more subtle that begin, like I said, to take the place and the priority that really belongs to Jesus and the word of God and the gospel in our family, but maybe other things are actually becoming of greater significance. What topics fill your conversation? You know, as your kids are observing the most significant things in your home, what are they growing up around? What do they hear? You know, if the things that are constantly filling the, the, the table in my home are the gripes and complaints about what's going on in culture and in politics, they're going to begin to think what's the most significant, most important thing in the world. I don't know. What is it that you're talking about? Who is it that you're talking about? Who gets the supremacy in your home? Because the reality is there are eyes and ears that are watching. When you begin to think about what things fill your time. You know, um, I'm a fan of multiple sports, and I think fan is short for what? Fanatic, right? You know, and so I remember, like, especially after getting married, because I'm the guy that would, like, tape the Laker game, shut off the radio, make sure that I avoided you so you didn't tell me the score, and if you did, it was, like, death lasers, you know, like, I'm, I'm just, don't do that. So it's like, you, you have this whole routine set up where you're like, leave me alone. Like, I got to hear this. I got to know this. And it's like, you know, you can, you can rattle off all the statistics of your favorite teams and your favorite players. And there's a little one who's trying to get your attention. There's somebody else that's significant and important in your life that God wants you to pour time in. And you're like, no, because ultimately this is more what? Important. I'm not getting on your case. Maybe God's tapping on your heart, but what I'm telling you is when you begin to think about things of significance, things of influence in your life, I can audit what you say, but I can also audit how you spend your time and tell you that those things that you pour your time into may have a greater impact on your worship than you think. Because worship really is about where I spend my time. I'm a soccer coach. My family's all invested in soccer. And I would often have to tell my kids as we think like, hey, we would get up at 6 and we would all get prepped up and we would go set up the field and spend an hour and a half in preparation. We would spend an hour and a half in the game. We'd spend an hour after cleaning up. No complaints. We're all pumped in to do it. And if I'm like, hey, can we get to church on time? We're like, oh, right? And again, I'm not, I'm not complaining to them. What I'm saying is, here's an example of what I mean by worship. The things that are important, the things that we put value on, they're easy. They're comfortable. I'm saying, hey, I can do this. I'm willing to do this. And when God opens up the door to show these things in our lives, I can say, hey, like this, can we do this sometimes for the Lord? And it becomes a teachable moment. It doesn't have to sometimes be either or. Sometimes God puts those things in our life to help give us insight and to say, oh, that's what I mean by worship. Am I willing to give the Lord a day? Am I willing to allow the word of God, a devotion, a communication, some insight into like the, uh, who God is? Can I let that fill our conversation in our home or are other things, the things that are filling up our time? What about, I used to say how I, how I audit your checkbook. Nobody has a checkbook anymore. But if you were to audit, right, do a little audit of your finances, pull up the app on your phone, and we were to look at the things which are consuming my finances, what are the things that I'm willing to spend on? What are the things that I'm willing to make an investment in? My point is, you're right, we maybe don't have little figurines, but I guarantee you there are things in your life that are in areas of significance and importance, and if you kind of audit what I talk about, what I spend my time on, what I spend my finances on, it might help answer that question, is the gospel primary in my life? Or maybe there are other, I know you don't like the word idols, but are there other things that are consuming some of that time, energy, resources that Jesus and the gospel alone deserve priority. Doesn't mean those things are necessarily evil and bad, but when they're out of balance, they certainly can. Jesus would say it this way, where your treasure is, what? There your heart will be also. And it's true. When we begin to say, okay, we're gonna make these priorities, with our finances, with our time, with our conversation. It's amazing how sometimes, like the action, the heart kind of follows. You know, you're like saying, I don't know if my heart's really there. Well, maybe start with the actions and watch how God begins to then move your heart as you align this place of obedience in your family. Because again, it might start with you, but your kids, the other people around you are watching and they're learning what worship looks like, just like I would in a, a, in a Roman home. You know, what we pray about, what we communicate, my, my understanding of death and life and significance, all of that is happening based on how we live our lives. Is there anything that God is calling you to tear down? And is there any areas in your life that you need to build up 
in terms of altars, areas in which I'm worshiping the Lord. What can I do this week to help build? Let me just make a couple of observations. Just thinking about practical things. Number one, what does prayer look like in your home? You know, in general, yeah, we probably do it. You guys did it probably for Thanksgiving. Well, we thank you for the food, right? And that's a good practical way to start. And you get maybe different family members to teach them how to pray. But that might not be the only time we pray. Do we pray when we drop our kids off at school? Do we pray with them when we're putting them down to sleep at night? Do we pray with them when they have a question or an issue that's going up with a, a family or a friend? When we're struggling and wrestling, they get done hearing us talk about the things that are going on in the world. We're like, man, this is overwhelming. Well, let's stop and let's pray. Like, where do they learn that from? if not from us. Scripture, where does the priority of Scripture fit into our home? We just said it, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But what does the, the preeminence of God's word look like in my house? Does a five-minute devotional at the dinner table, is that just like, oh. <laughs> or, or would it be something where it's like, hey, God's word has significance and priority and preeminence? Discussion, what are the things that we're discussing? Are we communicating them with a biblical lens? Boundaries, are there areas where I begin to say no because God's word says no? Am I placing healthy boundaries based on and rooted in God's word? We do it as a parent, like, no, you can't play with that knife, right? Like there are things that we say no to because I what? Because I love that person. And there's things that God's word says no to. There's healthy boundaries. And again, where does that come from if I'm not communicating? Not just no, but why there's a no? Hey, this is what God's word says. This was something we need to be careful with. Worship, what does worship look like in my home? My kids might know the, the lyrics to a whole bunch of songs, you know, and it's interesting how those songs play around in your head and in your mind, and they're meant to. Culture has a way of doing that. They want these things to stick with you. But what are the things that are actually educating, training, equipping, sticking into your heart and mind in those moments? Are, are they edifying the Lord? Is there a place for that in my home? What about church? Is the idea of coming to church, you know, an area of like priority and significance? And if so, what does that look like? I'm so grateful that you guys are here on Sunday. I am. Like this, this is part of why I, you know, get ready to come and preach. But the reality, like is church just something that we do and check a box? You know, or am I also looking not just what I can get, but what I can give? Am I looking to say, like, we want to be invested in what God's doing in and through the community? Like, we're a part of this body of Christ. We're a part of the big C body and the local body. Like, is church more than just coming and sitting in a seat? And I'm not saying that to get on anybody's case, but I'm saying that church has got to be more than just coming in and sitting down because the Holy Spirit has been poured out on you for the edifying building up of the body. You have gifts, things that God wants to do through you in the church. Where are they going to learn that? Where do they learn about service? Where do they learn about tithing? Where do they learn about this idea of like being a part of the body of Christ? And so when you look at just like these Romans who would have all of these other areas of their life that were influenced and impacted, you know, by their whole idea of worship, we think about the whole gospel and the culture wrestling match. It really is on us to be thinking about, man, how do I invest? How do I pour the gospel into my kids begin to parent, begin to teach. I don't have time to get into it today, but back in uh, the story preceding this, before we got to Thessalonica, as we looked in Philippi, we watched as the Philippian jailer, you know, as this guy who was like basically torturing Paul and Silas. And in the midst of all of that, he watches as, as Paul and, and Silas are navigating the gospel in a dark and difficult moment. The earth shakes, the doors open. And all of a sudden this guy says, man, what must I do to get saved? I don't have what you have and I need it. And what's cool is the way the story finishes is it talks about that, that this guy, if you notice, he says, sir, what must I do to be saved? And they respond, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in what? You and your whole household. Here's where it starts. It starts with what? You. You want your kids to be on fire for Jesus. You want your family and your loved ones to be able to have the gospel as the primary focus and tool, the thing that helps them as they navigate life's biggest questions. What happens after I die? Do I have to live with this idea of performance? What do I do with guilt and shame and sin and all the struggles I have? Like, how does Jesus actually help me in that? As you're going through difficult and challenging moments, it's us living out, bringing the gospel into their lives where this stuff becomes what? Real. And it talks about in him and his whole household get baptized. Like we see a radical change because this guy began to say, Hey, what must I do to be saved? This is where we're going to close it out today. Philippians chapter three, verse eight. 
Paul says, I consider everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. I'm not saying you got to throw the rest of the stuff out. Maybe there's stuff that you need to throw out. But the question that Paul is saying, do I love Jesus what? More. In comparison to Jesus, the Lakers, the Dodgers, you know, whatever thing is of such great significance, my job, my future accomplishments, all of these things, because that's what Paul was talking about. I was a Jew among Jew, a Pharisee circumcised on the eighth day. Like he goes down the list of all his accomplishments. That's what's preceding this statement. It says, I consider all these things what? Loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. These things no longer have that hold on me. Jesus is the primary, most important thing in my life. And that's the whole idea. How do I make Jesus more? Guys, as parents, as spouses, as people in our community, if you start there, how do I make Jesus more this week? I guarantee you it's going to have an impact on you and on the people that God has placed around you. Let's pray. Jesus, as we're closing out our service today, and maybe this week, Lord, there were a number of discussions and roller coaster moments with family and friends and our heart aches for them, Lord. And Lord, as we kind of look back at our lives, maybe some are struggling because of what they grew up with. Maybe there were other things that held a higher position and emphasis in their life, Lord. They didn't feel that gospel love. They didn't have that um, significance and grace poured into their lives. But I pray, Lord, this morning, as we're all listening, as we're thinking about, Lord, the love that you have poured out on us. Jesus, we want to be the people that start, Lord, that change, that transformation. Lord, we want to be the ones that tear down the altars and begin to build up an altar to you where you are the most important, the most wonderful, the most special thing that's in our lives. And Lord, we would ask right now through the power of your spirit, you would reveal to us, Lord, if there's things in our life Lord, that are making um, too high a significance. Maybe it's my job. Maybe it's my worries. Maybe it's my background, my past, just other things in my culture. I would pray, Lord, that you would begin to show us how the gospel begins to bring freedom, begins to bring healing, begins to bring wholeness. And I would pray, Lord, over our kids in a generation, Lord, where the world is, is actively, Lord, pursuing them. Lord, would you help us to be able to stand in and on the truth, to fight for our families, to fight, Lord, for the work that you desire to accomplish. I thank you for this church. I thank you, Lord, for the ways that you're using it. I pray for on-ramps for us as a, as a church, Lord, that you would help us to be those people that are impacting, pouring out those seeds, to raise up those Timothys, whether it's our kids or, Lord, the, the, the kids in the church, Lord. May we be a community, Lord, that is changing the trajectory of eternity for the people around us. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Let's go ahead and stand.